I hope uh, everyone enjoyed their Thanksgiving this past week, and uh, I hope that towards the top of your list, if not at the very top of your list of things to be thankful for, uh, was Christmas and uh, God sending Jesus, his only begotten son, to be our Savior and our Lord. Isaiah uh, predicted it, and Matthew confirmed it that one of the names that Jesus would embrace and that his person would be represented by was the name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew quotes um, Isaiah, and he says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Emmanuel. I wanted to uh, just kind of ask the question, who is Jesus, right? He's God with us. He's God who came close in the person of his son, Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. God up close. He's God who became knowable. A God who became approachable, can I suggest that in Jesus Christ, God became personal. God up close. God likes to be close to his people. And I would suggest to you that Christmas is about God coming close to us. And uh, the Bible tells us, you know, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus in Colossians. Uh, He is the image of the invisible God. A lot of times I'll ask people, you know, do you believe in God? And people say, oh, yeah. I say, well, tell me about the God you believe in. What's he like? What's important to him? Has he said anything lately? Has he, you know, what's he like? And it just goes blank. Like there's no, you know, uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And with the advent of Jesus, I want to suggest to you that an entirely new way of relating to God came into being. Doing life with God. Um, Some people do life for God, right? It's all about serving and it's all about giving and doing what I can and kind of, you know. um, Some people do life for God. Some people, you know, do life... uh, under God, and it's like uh, cause and effect. It's like, you know, if I just do what God said, if I raise my kids by the book, you know, when they get old, God has promised to take care of them, and everything's going to work out fine, and I just relate to God like that, like, you know, I try to find out the cause and effect. Uh, And people have different ways of relating to God, but have we thought about what it would be like to do life with God? That Jesus came so that we could do that, uh, that we could have life with God. But instead of people being excited that God came to be with us and that God wants to get up and close and personal with us, that he knows each of us by name, he knows how many hairs are on our head, and things like that that the Bible reveals to us. For some people it's easier for God than others, but you know, he knows how many hairs are on our head, and he's a personal God. And he wants to be up close and personal. But uh, when Jesus came uh, to bring God close to us, to be with us, uh, Jesus produced more fear. God coming into our space 
God getting personal created more fear at Christmas time than faith or excitement about the fact that God wants to know us personally. If you read through the Christmas story, you notice how often uh, the Bible says that people were afraid when God sort of came into their space. Mary, remember when the angel announced to Mary what was going to happen? The Bible says she was greatly troubled, and the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Joseph says, oh, I got to get a divorce. And the angel comes and says, just chill out, Joseph. You know, don't be afraid. Don't, do not fear, he, he, the angel says to Joseph. And uh, Zechariah, you might remember uh, Zechariah, the father of uh, John the Baptist, says that he was troubled, and the angel there was Gabriel, And uh, Gabriel uh, says to him, since you didn't believe me, I'm just going to mute you until this happens because I don't want you spreading, you know, what you don't believe. Um, The Bible says when you read through, uh, the wise men came and Herod, he was really freaked out uh, because he thought there was a rival king coming. But the Bible says that all Jerusalem with him feared what was going on. All of Jerusalem. Why all the fear? Um, The shepherds, you know, the angels came and the shepherds were filled, the Bible says, with fear. And so I think maybe even after all of these years, people today uh, still react to God's desire to come close and personal with this idea that I'm not so sure I really, I want to believe in God, but I want to keep him at an arm's length. I want to relate to him and I want to believe that he's there and so forth, but I I want to keep him where I can sort of control him. I kind of wonder if some of these false religions weren't created to keep God at an arm's length where we feel like we can sort of manage him over there. Rather than allow him to be Emmanuel, God, with us, up close and personal. Uh, Afraid of Christmas. Afraid of God coming close. I mean... If you think about it, why are there so many man-made distractions at Christmas time uh, when God is seeking to come close to us? Uh, so many distractions uh, that sidestep the main event, right? Uh, why has Christmas become so complicated? Why is it that when I turn on the news, Christmas is about economics and not about God coming close to us in the person of Jesus? Why is it that, you know, the songs that we used to sing at Christmas, like the light of the world is Jesus, or or, O come, O come, Emmanuel, has switched over to Grandma got run over by a reindeer? Why is that? What's going on here? Why is it? Um, Why is there more thought given to what we're going to eat on Christmas Day than the gifts that God wants to give us of hope and eternal life and salvation and peace and joy and Uh, unconditional love of God and a place for eternity. How did that happen? And why is it? And could it be because people more fear the idea of Emmanuel, God coming up close to us, God actually with us? We might ask the question, you know, how close do I want God to be to me? How personal do I want this relationship with Jesus to be to me? How, how influential do I want the Spirit of God to influence my thoughts and my attitudes? You know, uh, 
well have attitudes that we know God would switch if he had the option to, right? My attitude toward people, my attitude toward myself, my attitude toward the world, my attitude toward you know, people who are different than me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How close, how much of this Jesus do we really want in our lives? I understand that in the 17th century in England, the Puritans actually canceled Christmas for years because it had become an occasion for drunkenness. And I think, well, why would something like that happen? Well, do I fear the idea of God getting up close and personal to me? And I think you can go all the way back to Genesis uh, when God, uh, you can trace all the way back in Genesis when God uh, wanted to be close. He walked in the garden with our original parents, Adam and Eve, and spoke to them. Uh, He wanted to rule over creation with Adam and Eve. He had a role for them and a role for himself. He wanted to be with us. And if you go all the way to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, uh, John writes, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God wants to be with us. God with us. And so uh, from Genesis to Revelation, you kind of, we're living in between, right? Genesis and Revelation. And God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ uh, to be close to us. And the question becomes, you know, how close will we allow God to come to us? The truth is, uh, the problems that we encounter in the world, uh, you know, are going to be with us. Uh, we live in a broken world, and these problems are going to be with us uh, forever uh, until the Lord comes back. And uh, Jesus actually, you know, kind of made a promise about that. In John chapter 16, and you're probably familiar with this verse, uh, but Jesus says, I've said these things to you uh, that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Some people think, well, you know, if I let the Lord close to me and if I embrace uh, the truth about God, that he'll shield me from the world and I'll, I'll escape from some of the trials and the problems that come from living in a broken world. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're going to have tribulation. But then he says, uh, take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world that we live in today. Uh, I've overcome that world. And so what does that actually mean? Some people interpret that to mean that, you know, uh, well, when things happen to me, uh, because Jesus is in my life, they won't hurt as much. But then we go through some of those things, and we find out, you know, a divorce still leaves me very lonely and uh, leaves my kids confused. Um, uh, The loss of a loved one still leaves me grieving. Uh, financial reverse still leaves me with obligations that I can't pay. Uh, a wayward child still eats away at my heart. Health issues still annoy me. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And so I want to suggest that when Jesus is actually with us, he injects us with a thing called hope. Hope. And the Bible has a great uh, definition of hope. It's different from what the world uh, would suggest hope is. 
But Paul puts it like this in um, 2 Corinthians and chapter 4 and verses 16, 17, and 18. He says this, so we don't lose heart. We don't lose hope. We've been injected with hope. We don't lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Right? Nobody needs to explain that. Um, Our inner nature is being renewed. We have an inner nature and an outer nature. And uh, while our outer nature living in this world is wasting away, God is using those experiences to build our inner nature. We call it our body and our soul, right? Uh, To uh, build up our inner nature uh, for this slight and momentary affliction in this world is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory to come in the world to come an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is using the problems of this world that we encounter to build an inner soul, uh, inner nature, uh, which when we connect it to the future, um, all of a sudden enables us to compare what's happening here with the promises of God, all of which are yes, And all of a sudden, this hope, the Bible says, the author of Hebrews says, becomes like an anchor for our soul. When all the different things that come up against us, we have this anchor for our soul that holds us in place and enables us to deal with the various storms that come to us through life. We have this outer nature, but this inner nature is being developed uh, for the future. And when Jesus um, uh, is with us, uh, we're, we're able to connect the dots between the present and the future. And if we can't connect the dots, I think uh, a large part of wisdom is just being able to connect the dots properly between life now and life to come. And uh, when we have hope, it changes everything. In 1 Peter 1, the passage that was uh, read for us, um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll notice that uh, Peter says in verse 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. A hope that's alive in believers. A hope that's generated by the very Spirit of God. A hope that's tied to the promises that God has made about our future. And um, that hope is a living hope. Notice, it's not a static hope. It's a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus... Uh, from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Oh, it's kept in heaven for us. It's kept in heaven for us. You mean that inheritance and all those blessings and promises of God aren't necessarily for today, but they're kept in heaven for us? That I have this inheritance that's undefiled, that's not going to fade, that's, that's waiting for me, that Jesus has actually gone there to prepare a place for me to live with him for eternity, and so on and so forth, kept in heaven for you. Um, who by God's power are being uh, guarded through faith for a salvation, ready? Ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, you mean the world's not going to get us until the last time? You mean the world's not going to understand salvation until Jesus shows up a second time? Oh, my goodness. 
Now I understand why some of the things are like they, they are. I love this. If you go all the way down uh, to the 13th verse in 1 Peter, uh, here's what he writes to the people. He says, therefore, preparing your minds, uh, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, listen to this, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, I mean, Jesus came the first time, right? That's Christmas. And he provided for us a wonderful salvation. He came as our Savior. But when he comes back, things are going to be very different. He's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as a king, right? And uh, when he comes back, uh, the Bible's telling us here, you set your hope fully on the day that he comes back. Everything's going to change that day in the world. Set your hope fully. I don't even set my hope partially. I set my hope on, you know, I want this to happen today, and I want that to happen today. And, you know, and uh, sometimes I'm going to suggest to you we misplace our hope. Um, when we do that, we set ourselves up for a lot of hurt that we don't really have to bear uh, if we would connect the dots uh, to the future. Our inheritance is in heaven, and there's coming a day when people will understand and get who we are. The hope that's in the Bible is different than the hope that we normally speak about. Uh, When we talk about hope in our contemporary language, we usually have hope conditioned by uncertainty, right? On Thanksgiving Day, you could hear me saying, I hope the Cowboys win. (laughs) I was uncertain, right? I mean, Giants are doing pretty good this year. And I thought, well, I hope the Cowboys win because Everybody else in my household seems to be a Giants fan. So, But anyway, biblical hope is very different than that. Biblical hope is an unshakable confidence that God can be trusted and that he will fulfill every promise he has made. Okay, uh, God can be trusted, and Jesus is coming back uh, to rule. He's not uh, coming back the same way uh, that he came the first time. He's coming back to rule. Uh, Titus uh, talks about this. Uh, Jude talks about, Titus talks about the blessed hope that we have as Christians uh, coming back to rule. He came as a savior the first time, but he's coming back as the king. In in Jude chapter, uh, the first chapter, verses 24 and 25, Jude says, look, you know, um, it's a half-brother of Jesus. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now. There's one person in the universe that can make you blameless before God. Someday when we pass out of this life, we're going to stand before God. There are many passages that talk about this. And there's one person, Jesus, who came close to us. How tragic would it be if you left Jesus on the table and your one chance to be blameless for that future day when you stand before the Lord because you were afraid to allow Jesus to come close? How sad would that be if you left Christmas on the table and missed out on the one person who, when he comes and becomes personal, can make us literally blameless before God who is perfect and holy. The one person who could do that, how sad it would be if we were to leave that on the table and miss it because of fear. 
Faith is the assurance, the Bible says, of things hoped for. Faith is what connects us to the future. And when biblical faith rises above our fears, uh, hope begins to get born in us and begins to grow. The 119th Psalm and verse 50 says this. This is my comfort. It's talking about in this life. This is my comfort, okay, in my affliction that your promises give me life. Again, the hope that we have and the promises of God, and all the promises of God are for the future, right? For us. And the future and the the promises of God are like an anchor. Hope is like an anchor in the future that enables us to stay steady in the storm, uh, the storms of life that come. And uh, the promise is that you're, the promise is what gives me uh, the life of God. Another thought about this uh, in Romans chapter 8 says that uh, hope actually produces um, uh, patience. How many people struggle with patience? <laughs> oh, I just don't have a, a lot of patience. Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 24 and 25 speak about this. And again, uh, listen to Paul talk about this. Uh, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope. For he who hopes for what he, who hopes for what he sees. Uh, but if we hope for what we do not Yet, see, we wait with patience. We wait with patience. We have such confidence in the promises of God that as we face the various uh, issues that come to us from a broken down world, uh, we don't lose hope. And uh, we're able to stand in that place uh, just like Jesus stood and uh, uh, allow hope. Hope is uh, one of the gifts that God wrapped up for us in the person of Jesus but, you know, hope can really be misplaced uh, if it's easily misplaced because we sometimes misunderstand that God has made promises for this life and God has made promises for the next life. And if we get them mixed up, okay, we get all kinds of confusion and we don't understand and we can't figure out what God is up to and so forth. Hope is one of those gifts that God has given us, but we can become so, preoccup- so preoccupied with this life that we um, you know, uh, want so many things. We hope in this life so bad that we forget about the promises that God has placed in front of us that are yet to come. There were these uh, two Jewish guys who uh, went to Jerusalem <coughs> excuse me, for the week of Passover, and... Um, You know, they might have been in the crowd when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Palm Sunday. And uh, you might remember the crowd was saying, blessed is the king, you know, who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the following Friday, these two guys were eyewitnesses of Jesus being crucified. So early Sunday morning, these two guys decide to leave early and they're going to go back home uh, to Emmaus where they lived about seven miles away from Jerusalem, but they're walking. And so they're walking along and they're talking, and uh, all of a sudden a third person joins them, and this third person asks them uh, what they're talking about. In Luke chapter 24, and you're probably, again, familiar with the story, but in Luke chapter 24, verse 17, uh, the third person was Jesus, right? And so Jesus asks these guys a question. He says, uh, he says to them, you know, what are you guys talking about? 
what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and they looked sad. They looked sad. And then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these last days? And he said to them, what things? Jesus, he's like Columbo. You old enough to remember the, remember the detective Columbo? Jesus just like, what things? What are you talking about? And they said to him, you know, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man uh, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and he was crucified. Now here's the verse, verse 21. But we had hoped, but we had hoped, these two Jewish guys, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, we were so hoping that he was going to work things out the way we had it figured out what God was up to. We were so hoping, you know, uh, that he would have been the one to make Israel great again. We were hoping that he would, you know, make Israel like in King David's day. We were so hoping that, you know, he was going to redeem Israel and life would just be shalom. It would be peaceful again like it was when David was our king. We so hoped that he was going to get rid of this Roman occupation. You ever use this phrase? Oh, I had hoped. We so hoped. I had hoped the cancer was gone. I had hoped uh, that he wouldn't go for the divorce and he would go to counseling. I had hoped that the addiction was behind us, but it's still here. I had hoped that our family would have turned out different. I had hoped that the job would have come through. Oh, I so hoped that my parents could have worked it out. What we wanted, what we expected, we didn't get. And what we got, we didn't want. And here's these two guys looking sad, heads down, walking along the road, talking about all that happened, all their hope that was in this Jesus. We were all so hoping he was going to redeem Israel. Well, he is going to redeem Israel. But in his time and in his way. You can read Romans 9 through 11 and see that all Israel will be saved someday, Paul says. Uh, there's going to be a redemption, but, and you can read in the Old Testament how it's going to be. There are two kinds of hope, right? There's hope that's based on wishful thinking, like you hope the Cowboys are going to win. And then there's hope that's based on the unshakable, rock-solid word of God and the promises that he makes. Okay? And so look what Jesus does here. He says, you know, these guys are like, oh, we had so hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. Yeah, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened, and they start explaining to him. And Jesus responds to them uh, down in the 25th verse, and he says this. He says, oh, foolish ones. Foolish ones. What's wrong with you guys? You're Jewish believers. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. We're all afraid now what's going to happen in Israel after all of this. Slow of heart to believe uh, all that the prophets have spoken. You didn't read your scriptures. Didn't you understand, Jesus goes on to say, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things 
and enter in, then enter into his glory? Didn't you guys read your book? Didn't you read the book that God wrote to you? You know, didn't you understand these things before they happened so that when they happened? No, all of Israel pretty much missed the coming of Jesus. All prophesied. I could uh, show you at least 50 different prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus coming, which the entire Jewish community, for the most part, missed. And then I think, I wonder if we're like that when it comes to the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. And are we alert and have we done what Jesus said to these two guys or have we misplaced our hope? And we're so hoping Jesus will help us out in this life in all the different ways that we want. And he will and he does. And I'm not trying to you know, dismiss that. I'm just saying that he has made so many great promises to us that have to do with his second coming. And when we misplace those promises and try to drag them into this life, it creates all kinds of confusion for us. Um, I'll give you an example, okay? I have a, uh, I just copied this out of an old hymn book. A hymn book's a thing that we used to sing out of, right, in church? And uh, it's called Joy to the World. And, you know, we sing this at Christmas time, right? Uh, do you know Joy to the World was written for the second coming of Christ? It wasn't written for the first, it wasn't written for Christmas. It was Isaac Watts wrote it for the second coming. Listen to what we sang. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Second coming, right? Heaven and nature sing. Wow, I read in Romans 8 that heaven and nature are groaning right now, longing to be released from this sinful world and come into the fullness of the promises that God has made, along with God's people who are groaning. At this point, Romans chapter 8, you know, uh, heaven and nature aren't singing, you know, and uh, he rules the world with grace and truth, truth and grace. Is that what's going on today? You know, if we take that and we say, well, you know, I thought at Christmas Jesus came and he's ruling the world and he's rule, ruling the world with his truth and his grace. You know, I must really be out of it because it doesn't seem like he's ruling the world with truth and grace today. He's ruling our lives with truth and grace. And that's the invitation that he has to us. But uh, we get confused when we misplace our hope. And it seems to me that's what these uh, two guys on their way to Emmaus were. If Jesus had done what these two guys had hoped he would do and thought he was going to do, if he had redeemed Israel, the last 2,000 years wouldn't have happened. Right? Um, The church would have never been born. If he had done what these people hoped for, the church would never have been born. God's promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth uh, through Jesus would never have happened if God redeemed Israel then, and that was the end of history, you know, as we know it. Uh, Israel will be redeemed, but it again will be in God's time. There would have been no Good Friday and no Easter Sunday and no gospel for us Gentiles if Jesus had done what they had hoped he would do when they wanted him to do it. God doesn't always do what we hope. And we uh, hope, our hope isn't always informed by uh, understanding of God's word to us. And uh, often I think God does more than we hope and does beyond what we hope. Uh, We had hoped, you know, dad would pull through. But God gave him eternal life instead. 
We had hoped for a smooth life, but we got lots of problems, and the problems drew us to a relationship with the living God. We had hoped that the job would come through, but it didn't come through, but God used that experience to build my character and get me ready to live with him in eternity. He used it to make me more like Jesus. We had hoped, you know, for... uh, uh, for a great marriage. But uh, it didn't turn out that way. But God taught me how to love unconditionally through that marriage. Our hope is in God and in his son, Jesus our Lord and in his word to us. Uh, God often does when we trust him and put our hope in him. And not just his gifts, but himself, because he wants to come close. He wants to be personal. And when we allow him that access to the inside of our lives, to our souls, to that inner part of our being, uh, he accomplishes his will, which is always in our best interest. He's our loving Heavenly Father who gave his only begotten Son so that we might have everlasting life. What a God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for hope. We're so thankful that we have a God that we can trust. A God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God who will never change his mind. Uh, A God that is 100% trustworthy. And we read these promises in your word. Help us to understand, you know, the timing. Help us to understand uh, what your plan is for our future. And help us, uh, unlike these two Jewish guys uh, way back in that day, help us to be people of the word, people who study your scriptures so that we might increasingly understand and so that we might not miss all that's going on in preparation for the return of Jesus, the second coming, when Jesus comes as the king of kings and all these things that are in that song, Joy to the World, become realities on the earth because Jesus is ruling in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you, Father, for these great promises about the future. In Jesus' name, amen.